Hello everyone, Dr. Annika Becca here on Couch Talk with Dr. Mesh Seibel. And today we're going to be talking about the estrogen window, which is Dr. Mesh's new book. And also a really important area of women's health, menopausal health, all the controversy that relates to hormone therapy in the menopause, and especially when it comes to estrogen. So I'd like to introduce my special guest, Dr. Mesh, here today, who has a incredible curriculum vitae, incredible history. He's had 20 years as part of Harvard's medical faculty. He's been the division chief of reproductive medicine and infertility and the director of their fellowship training program. Currently, he's a professor at the University of Massachusetts Medical School and has been part of Gates Foundation researching um, the Grand Challenges Explorations section as a grant principal investigator. You'll have to correct me, Dr. Mace, on that. He's received media awards from the North American Menopause Society. He's the founder of My Menopause Magazine, and he's been host for PBS and New York City TV episodes, NYC TV episodes. He's repeatedly been voted Best Doctors in America, and he's past editor-of-chief of the medical journal Sexuality, Reproduction, and Menopause. He's also received Distinguished Alumnus Awards from the University of Texas Medical Branch, and he's advisory board of Dr. Mehmet Health Corps Childhood Obesity Initiative. Very importantly, also, I found out recently that Dr. Mesh has lectured and been part of our training of our Emory University OBGYN department. So he also trained at Emory University, where many of you know that I did as well. And we were just reminiscing on that a little bit before our call as well. So Dr. Mesh, it's so great to have you here today. I'm really thrilled to be with you and sharing in this opportunity to spread some word that I think will be helpful to women. Oh, yeah. Well, talk to us about the history you've seen over the last couple decades regarding the hormonal uh, challenges that we face. I mean, I, I have had a practice since I trained at Emory in 1995, and I've seen kind of an evolution of this whole hormonal, you know, menopause prescribing patterns, et cetera. And I would love your input and just kind of how you've seen it evolve. Well, estrogen is a fascinating hormone. It's been around since only 1942, but it seems like forever. But think about it. Before 1942, there were no treatments for women in menopause. And then it was so good that they started giving it to everyone. Even men got, got uh, estrogen because they thought it was going to reduce the risk of heart disease and other conditions. Of course, uh, it wasn't so good for men, as you might expect. And then what happened is, since they didn't know the dosage and they didn't know how long to give it or anything, it started to cause problems like uterine cancer because if you have a uterus and you get estrogen in your normal menstrual cycle, you have to get some progesterone to ready the uterine lining for implantation for a pregnancy. And if that doesn't happen, the, you have a period in the lining sheds. So if you don't get that progesterone, the estrogen is uh, harmful potentially. And then it got good again. And eventually there was a study to prove everything was happening uh, was documented. So in 2002, there was this Women's Health Initiative study, the WHI. And in that study, they wanted to prove that estrogen was good for your heart and 
uh, many other things. And that would be important because women who worry so much about breast cancer, in fact, are 10 times more likely to die of heart disease. And that's a big, big issue for women. That'd be a huge gain. But what ended up happening is the study showed that women had an increased risk of heart disease and an increased risk of breast cancer, dementia, and a lot of other conditions if they took estrogen. But they got it wrong. And I'll explain to you why in a minute, but may I continue or... Oh, yeah, please, because that Women's Health Initiative, I was just a few years into my medical practice in Southeast Georgia and had been following the Women's Health Initiative because at Emory, I was part of an investigator on the HERS trial, right? Hormone and estrogen replacement therapy in in women with cardiovascular disease and looking at, at that trial. So I was keen on it because I knew just that, you know, hormonal therapy had so many benefits for our menopausal patients. And then this research like hit the late, the press and I had to go like you did to the original research papers and, and investigate exactly what did they say, you know? And, um, but that was, it really did unnecessarily cause some craziness. Well, you know, you make such an important point because something that was supposed to help so many women actually harmed so many women. And here's how they got it wrong. In that one study, the way it was divided up is the women who got the estrogen, and in this case also a synthetic progesterone called Provera, they got this combined pill, and most of the women who got it were between 60 and 79 years old. And many of them were smokers, they had diabetes, and they had hypertension, high blood pressure. And the women who didn't get the medicine, the ones who got the placebo, were largely healthy women aged 50 to 59. So if you compare you know, women who are 50 to 59 and healthy to women who are 60 to 79 with medical issues, who's going to come out worse, whether or not they get hormones? I mean, the women who have the older age who have medical issues, and that's what happened. But it took a long time to sort this out. And what happened to me personally was, that was in 2002. Seven months later, there was another article that came out And this time it was about a new gene called the BRCA or breast cancer gene. Now this breast cancer gene, as the name implies, made it seem like if you had it, you were an increased risk of breast cancer. And you know, that's true. And what happened is my wife who had many, many women in her family die of ovarian cancer was worried that she would have this BRCA gene because, in fact, now it's called the breast and ovarian hereditary syndrome gene. And we also know now that people with that gene are 22 times more likely to get pancreatic cancer. So it's, it's a very important gene to know about. And my wife wanted to be tested, and she was positive. Mm. And when she got that gene, she had surgery then that threw her into early menopause. And her doctors did not want to give her estrogen. And this was a big issue. And so I believed that the data wasn't correct. And actually my journey into understanding this began back then, trying to unravel it. But it took me a decade of diligence, plus 
some new studies that have only come out in the more recent past to really piece together an understanding of the importance of timing in terms of making a difference in the safety. Because we now know that most women can safely take estrogen and get their symptoms taken care of. And if they don't, it's unfortunate because the lack of hormones, the lack of estrogen in the estrogen window is a real cause for concern in women because it puts them at increased risk for breast cancer and for heart disease and dementia and a lot of other things. Mm, yeah, that's so true. So then how did you um, treat your wife? How did you in interview? Well, I had to talk and find who I could talk with and work with because they say doctors who treat their families are doctors who treat themselves have fools for patients. That's mm -hmm. the expression. So I try not to be treating, but I definitely am involved in the influencing of. But I finally was identified, I was able to identify uh, her current doctor who is, um, who treated her with estrogen. But it was helpful to me that I had trained him and I knew where his thinking was because I understood and had the ability to share with him what I was learning and keeping current with all along. So it was uh, very good for her. So she has not been affected by any of that. And we now know, and this is real important because this breast cancer gene is a big deal. And a lot of women have their ovaries out so they won't get breast cancer because of the BRCA gene or for in the thing I want to tell you is that what we now know is that taking estrogen, if you do have the BRCA gene, does not put you at any increased risk for breast cancer over the background risk of breast cancer that you would have anyway. So this is very important for women to know because so many women lose their ovaries due to surgery and are thrown into early menopause with that gene, but taking estrogen doesn't make it worse or more risky. So that's very important. Oh, yeah, that's hugely important. And so is it um, current with the research? I mean, is it corroborated with the research looking at removing the ovaries in people that are BRCA gene positive? Yes, Does well, a lot, stand out? a lot of the reason the surgery is done, some of it is they thought was for breast cancer, but a lot of the reason is because of this increased risk of ovarian cancer, particularly the BRCA2 tends to overrepresent the ovarian cancer a lot more. The BRCA1, a different gene, tends to be a little more breast versus ovarian. And if you recall, Angelina Jolie had her ovaries removed in order to prevent uh, the risk of ovarian cancer. And we don't think of someone like her as in menopause. She's very attractive. She's right out there. So she made a very courageous decision to go public with this information, but she is on estrogen and she talks about that. She's on a transdermal estrogen and she is on an IUD with progesterone and her uterus in order for the lining not to build up as a result of that estrogen. And so she is, uh, she has been very vocal about it, and she's, I'm very happy to say that she has been a, a really good role model for women to speak out when they have issues so that they can get help, and that's very important. Yeah, I think what's interesting, you know, training in our, our same residency training program, we were very surgery heavy, right? I mean, that's a big goal. We're going to treat the patient. We're going to 
fix the problem and and that's going to be it and what i then noticed in private practice over the past couple of decades well some the cause of the problem is still there that yeah. caused the uterine issues or bleeding issues or the ovarian cyst issues or etc and that getting to those underlying issues has been so key and um where my whole emphasis into functional medicine took me right and using bioidentical hormone replacement therapy and really you know helping people achieve the lifestyle changes that support healthy hormonal balance but one of the pieces of research that really struck me, which I didn't know in residency, um, was published that showed women who have their ovaries removed before age 65 have over a 50 to 75% increased risk of coronary vascular disease. Mm -hmm. So hence the argument for early intervention with hormonal replacement therapy or, you know, estrogen replacement therapy could be you know, for that reason, um, and certainly in patients that are high risk with the BRCA gene positive, but in general, you know, conserving the ovaries when at all possible, but then using, um, it, the research showed that using estrogen at the time of surgery or shortly thereafter decreased or pretty much obliterated that increase, that really significant increased risk. So let's talk about that, because I know you addressed this in the estrogen window. Right. Well, it's a very important point you're bringing up. Very, very, very important because a lot of women think that when you go into menopause, you're older. But I want to explain to you that menopause is not about age. Menopause is about transition. And it's about the hormonal transition that happens in a woman's body. Now, why does that matter when we look at it as a transition? I like to consider it a transformation, like the butterfly coming out of the cocoon. Thank you very much, being 50. Well, it certainly can be a transformation as well, transformational. But the point I want to address is that 5 to 10% of women go into menopause before age 45. And 1 in 100 women goes into menopause before age 40. And 1 in 1,000 goes into menopause before age 30. And the symptoms often begin as much as a decade before that. So I want to really emphasize that if you are having symptoms, foggy brain, suddenly starting to gain weight you can't account for, you're having funny palpitations in your chest, you're starting to have some uh, issues with intimacy, it could be early menopause and you have to be aware of that and just talk about it with your healthcare provider. This is really important. Now, the issue of heart disease is really a big deal because in a study that was published in the last year, there was a study that looked at the impact of avoiding estrogen on women's longevity. And let me tell you what they found. They found that as a result of not taking estrogen, based on the fact that in the Women's Health Initiative, that study we talked about, a few years later, there was another report that came out just in women who had had a hysterectomy so they only needed estrogen. Remember, we said earlier, you, take, you only need the progesterone or the progestin to prevent the lining from building up. But if you don't have a uterus, you don't need progesterone. In women who take estrogen only in particular, the risk of heart attack goes down a substantial amount, so much so that the actuarial study that was done at Yale University showed that 
up to 50,000 women died prematurely because they avoided estrogen between the years of 2002 and 2013 when the study was concluded. Now, that's a lot of loss of life, a lot of loss of quality of life when women are at their peak of their productivity, of their capacity, and it's really unfortunate. So estrogen really does have a positive impact on the heart, which was what we thought before the 2002 study, but got buggered up a little with the misunderstanding of how it was collected. Well, I think you make some really great points there is um, definitely we were, the 2002 study overshadowed the benefits for Mm -hmm. sure that women do achieve. And then also the flaws, the inherent design flaws to the study, which used a synthetic progestin, which does not act like bioidentical progesterone, which increases cardiovascular risks, issues, coagulopathies, et cetera, as well as breast cancer. And and the research um, that looked at comparisons between bioidentical progesterone, prometrium, or oral or or transdermal versus the synthetic, we know that they are two different, really, really two different species for the body. So they shouldn't be and in our medical literature, unfortunately, and in the lay press, it's confused. So women got afraid of bioidentical progesterone, which I believe, you know, and I emphasize that we need it with or without a uterus because it does help the underlying cause of many of the reasons that we end up with a hysterectomy to begin with, but also the benefits on the brain, the breast, the bones, uh, neurocognitive, sleep, et cetera, that that we do, we do benefit from, especially if they've had um, ov- ovaries removed and, mm-hmm. and looking at using bioidentical, very low dose, you know, transdermal or oral to help with um, those symptoms too that menopausal women are experiencing. But you are so right. This transition time period, I mean, I was diagnosed with early menopause at 38 years old. Wow. ovarian failure. Right. And so I and told I was never going to be able to have another child, you know, and and the devastation upon devastation for women listening of how that feels. It's a a box of Kleenex talk when I've talked to women like that, which happens a couple of times every year. And it is incredibly and profoundly sad because particularly for women who haven't had their children yet or all the children they want, because it's not only a loss of ovarian function, it's a loss of that reproductive potential to have a child. And of course, that ability to have a child and to see ourselves live on, you know, we don't have to have fortunes and put our names on buildings in order to live on. We live on through our children. That's where our essence continues. And the denial of that is a profound loss. And it's a hard loss because it is a loss. You don't bury that child. That's a child who might have been. And that loss is profound because it cannot be expressed to people who don't understand it. It's the loss of a potential. Mm -hmm. It's a loss of an enduring quality that we have. That's profound. When I was doing more of my infertility work, I wrote a poem. It went... The simple union of men and wife, of man and wife, uh, together makes a brand new life. Uh, a child intended to be their link with immortality. What bliss and joy they anticipate, unless infertility becomes their fate, and buries dreams that die within as they mourn the child who might have been. 
Mm. And it's all about loss of potential. It's a profound loss that's not appreciated by those outside. But the thing that is important, and I want to go back to our original, is why the estrogen is so binary in its effect, is because estrogen taken in continuity with the end of menses, whether it's at 38 or whether it's at 58, the, it prevents plaque formation. It prevents buildup of thickening of the lining of the arteries, which leads to all the problems. But in the absence of that protective quality, if you leave it alone until you're 60 or 65 and start it then, what can happen is the clots now are formed, though not the clots, but the plaque is formed and they become more brittle and loose. And estrogen then, at that phase introduced late, can increase the risk of stroke and increase of blood clots. So it's this binary experience with estrogen, protective as long as it's continued, but if a gap occurs, then the plaque that's there is more susceptible to harm, to cause harm, and estrogen enhances the harm if given later, not so in the beginning. And there's been so many articles. There was a year ago an article, uh, a paper from uh, Finland and 500,000 women showing that women who take, in this case, oral estradiol, and uh, even if they took progesterone, but bioidentical progesterone is the primary one, they not only had less heart attacks, but they lived longer than women who didn't take estrogen. And, the, and in the New England Journal just a few weeks ago, there was an article out of uh, Howard Hodes was the first author. And he showed that by taking estradiol together, in this case with a vaginal progesterone, 45 milligrams vaginally for 10 days a month, that they were able to lower the risk of thickening of the arteries in the neck and they showed reduced intimal thickening compared to women who didn't get it. So there's lots and lots, lots of data. As long as they get it in that, particularly if they get it in the six year window between menopause and the next six years. If they wait 10 years and take it then, the plaque increases. So this is very much the estrogen window, and I'll just show for a minute in my book here, the estrogen window, and it is really very impressive, and it's different for your face, it's different for your brain, it's different for your breast, it's different for your bones, your bladder, and so it matters. You have to understand this because my goal for you is to become a partner with your healthcare provider. You cannot go in there for eight minutes and get the information that you need if you know nothing. And just this last, I think it was March Third, 2016, there was an article in the New England Journal showing that because of the misinformation that has come out, 80% fewer women are taking estrogen today than they were in 2002. And because nobody's taking it, relatively speaking, the consequence of that is, is that the doctors coming out of training don't know much about estrogen or menopause treatment. Many of the primary care doctors don't. Many OBGYNs still don't because they haven't had the time. They're working hard. They, they've, they have read well-intended but misguided studies that have caused women to suffer unnecessarily. And hey, it can be safe and it can be helpful for you. That's what I want for you, every one of you, to benefit from. Not to have the fear of it. And one of the things that I liked mm -hmm. really about your book too is just the helpful charts and diagrams and you know the different types of estrogen and 
your recommendations and input on all of those. And I think that's so useful because we have to have a conversation with our patients. And, and as, a pa as a woman, you want to kind of know what's available and be able to speak. Well, this one would suit me more like the patch versus oral. And I kind of want to ask you about this, Dr. Mache. I had this kind of rule of thumb, clinical rule of thumb, clinical practice mm -hmm. rule of thumb, if you will, that if a woman, you know, I would do oral estrogen prior to the onset of cardiovascular disease or age 55 mm -hmm. or, and then transdermal estrogen because of the oral has a slightly different, we know that prior to the onset of heart disease, it may promote healthy mm -hmm. uh, blood vessel or angiogenesis. And, but after we risk the oral, especially with oral estrogen, we risk increasing in the inflammatory markers and hence the plaque formation. So mm -hmm. transdermal estrogen may still be an option in those patients. Well, I tell, I tell my patients that estrogen is a five-year renewable option because two things happen in medicine. Number one, the patient changes her symptoms, her condition, her age, her other illnesses and other things, and the data changes. So I'm always saying you have to renew your visit to this. But to address what you're saying, uh, oral, uh, it, transdermal is, has a particularly beneficial component to it because in general, it is less likely to increase blood clots and less likely to cause a stroke and these kinds of things. Anything that's sort of the, because it bypasses the liver, which in, when, the, when you take something by mouth, it goes through what they call the hepatic circulation, it's going to this uh, increasing, causing the liver to make increased blood clotting factors. So by taking this, avoiding what they call the first pass, you're safer with the transdermal, whether it's a cream or whether it's a patch or what, a gel, whatever. Now, the thing about it is this, is that what we're finding is that if the dose of oral is kept low, like for instance, if it's a conjugated estrogen, such as one called Premarin, and it's like 0.3 or lower, or if you're down in the bioidentical types, the estradiol uh, or whatever brand they might happen to be, and you're in like the one milligram amounts, so you're in about those dosages, that seems to fare pretty well with the blood clots as long as the dosage is in the, like the lower half of the dosage regimen. But these are, you know, as Mark Twain said, all generalizations are inaccurate, including this one. But mm -hmm. in general, that's true. So there, you, if people, you know, women have been trained through decades of taking birth control pills. And so they are accustomed to oral medication. And what happened is in 2002, when the original study came out, there was basically, there was transdermal, but no one was taking it. But now transdermal is begun to be taking, uh, taken more often. So uh, the, the reason is people were afraid of Premarin and transdermal was the, the main one. But, um, you know, there's also understand that the transdermal, the ones you get from the drugstore are FDA approved and they are bioidentical and they are consistent. And one of the things that's coming out about the compounding pharmacies right now is that while they can be very good, when they have taken estrogen from prescribed by the same prescription given to 12 different compounding pharmacies, the dosages were all different that they actually got back when they took those uh, filled prescriptions to a chemistry lab and analyzed it. 
And in general, the estrogen tended to be 50 to 80% higher in dose, and the progesterone tended to be 50 to 80% lower in dose. So what's happened is there's now the first starting to get, there's been four cases of uterine cancer coming out because women are getting so much more estrogen, even though they're getting the right dose, it's being filled in a way, even if it's filled correctly. It's kind of like when you take the M&Ms in the ice cream store and you stick them into the vanilla ice cream and you stir it all around. Sometimes you stick in a spoon and you get a bunch of M&Ms and sometimes you don't get a bunch, you don't get any. And what's happening is that about one third of women are taking hormones now from pharmacies or compounding pharmacies. So all I'm saying is it can be very good, it can be very helpful, it can be very effective, but if you do that, be sure to have your healthcare provider check your uterine lining, either by ultrasound or checking the lining cells of the uterus with something called an endometrial biopsy every year or two anyway, so that you know that you're not being snuck up on by a side effect you, you didn't realize. Right. And I think, and that's a good point. I think, you know, one thing to look at with compounding pharmacies that they have an affiliation with the PCCA, which I think is the high, their governing body and they have a good relationship with that. And it's important because the, um, to get bioidentical hormones from some, a compounder that does it often, right? That does it often, that has a good reputation, et cetera, because sometimes the pharmacy may only fill a couple compounds a month, and that's not the familiarity that we necessarily need, especially for intricate, you know, customized hormone therapy. So that's an excellent point. And then the other thing is I think whether whatever hormone therapy we're on, that we should be, as, as patients or, and as physicians, we should be getting uterine ultrasounds. I think it's harmless, it's wonderful, yeah. and it's a way to monitor the endometrial lining before there's a problem, as well as the ovaries while we're there, right? I think you made a good point, because right now, you know, insurance doesn't often, often won't pay for ultrasounds of the ovary, and there's been a lot of confusion about whether or not they're cost-effective. But you know, every cancer is, is small before it's big. And my belief is that, you know, today we have a third of the country is overweight and a third of the country more is obese. And what that means is those ovaries, which at the time of menopause are about this, you know, they're about, they go from about this big to about this big. And it's pretty hard to feel through the belly of a quite uh, heavy set woman. So ultrasound can be sometimes the first way to see that and then you also get to see the uterine lining and if the lining is below four millimeters pretty much no risk of uh, uterine cancer and you get the extra benefits as you said it's a very good point you make yeah i'll give late the ladies a code if their doctor doesn't know v58.69 i mean surveillance for long-term use of medication so um because often it's like okay, what code's going to cover it and yes. so knowing that code can you know uh help the insurance company cover it. You know, we've got a long-term use of medication code. So, so that's helpful. And speaking of, you know, vaginal ultrasound, we get a good image. And so speaking of the healthy vagina, what about vaginal estrogen therapy? And is there a shorter or longer window for it? That's the coolest part in the book, in the estrogen window, what I talk about is that the window for the vagina never closes. So that this is really important because for women who uh, 
are going through menopause and aren't taking estrogen, the vaginal changes occur over time after menopause. So menopause, by definition, is if it's natural menopause, is a year after your last menstrual period. Of course, if your ovaries are removed, you're in menopause at that time, regardless of your age. So what happens is the symptoms creep up, and what happens is the, the, the vaginal tissue is very receptive to estrogen. And in the absence of estrogen, slowly, slowly, the tissue flattens, it narrows, and it shortens. And so being sexually active is helpful to prevent that from happening, but even so, it can happen. And usually it starts about three years after menopause and beyond, and a lot of women do not associate vaginal dryness and vaginal pain with menopause. But it's in fact probably the most common symptom if you wait three years out or more. And the thing about it is, is that every other symptom of menopause typically gets less with time, but the vaginal changes typically get worse with time because they're unopposed and it continues to narrow and shorten. So here's the thing. Vaginal estrogen is incredibly safe. Yes, it's true that some of it will get in the bloodstream, but depending on your choice, very little and not enough to worry about. And here's something that is really important. Just in the recent past, the American College of OBGYN passed a practice bulletin, and they said that women with estrogen receptor positive breast cancer, yes, estrogen receptor positive breast cancer, can take vaginal estrogen. Now, of course, you have to work with your doctor and your oncologist, and it may not be the first choice, but it's a totally appropriate choice where intimacy and discomfort becomes a problem. And let me say, for some women, vaginal discomfort is so great, they can't get on the ground and play with their grandkids, they can't ride a bicycle, they can't be running and jogging, and sexual, uh, uh, sexual intimacy, of course, is an issue, but just, just activity and, act and so forth can be hurt painful because the, the lips of the vagina will rub together causing discomfort. There's no reason, even whether you are a current breast cancer patient, whether you are a survivor past breast cancer, or even if you are on tamoxifen, yes, an anti-estrogen, you can pause treatment for a short while and get vaginal estrogen to relieve that part of your life. There is no reason to struggle through breast cancer treatment and suffer this way when there is absolutely beneficial opportunity for you to live your life as wholly and fully as you can. Oh, that is so such good points there because it is so important. And I think too, the vaginal dryness um, and as an issue can be in the whole perimenopause arena where it causes the unspoken, the silent disconnect between, you know, a husband and wife is that, okay, well, if you're going to hurt every time you have sex, you're experiencing dryness, you're experiencing messy discharge afterwards. Mm -hmm. Why would you want to have sex? I mean, you're naturally going to have a decline in, in receptivity sure. and decline in desire. So, so that's an important issue, but not only just for, and, and I also want to tell clients because this is just something to realize is toilet paper trauma, right? With the vaginal dryness in the perimenopause with the regular bleeding from vaginal dryness, tampon trauma. I mean, we really have these experiences as women and it doesn't have to be that way, but also the connection with incontinence. 
and you know the sequela of an un, you know the thinning of the vaginal mucosa and the shortening of the vagina but also the you know growing incidence and and trauma of incontinence i want to tell you another thing that's very important too um for many women as they get older they get into their 70s 80s 90s Okay, and then what happens is many of them either don't take estrogen, aren't taking estrogen, or they discontinue estrogen. Who needs it? I'm 90. Well, you do. Here's why. Because what happens is, for the very thing you talked about, remember I talked about how the tissues shrink. Well, the urethra is that little tube that goes from the bladder, and the urine comes out through it, and it comes out the top of the vagina. So what happens is, as the tissue in the vagina shrinks, the urethra sticks out. So what happens is it exposes the urethra to the bacteria that are normally in the vagina, totally normal bacteria, and it causes them to increase the risk of bladder infections. And we know that local topical estrogen on the vaginal area there as aging occurs is as effective as antibiotics in preventing recurrent UTIs. Now a UTI, urinary tract infection, is important because it's a bladder infection, of course. But what happens to untreated bladder infections and particularly in older women is they become septic. They end up getting an infection in their bloodstream. And then what happens then? Their bloodstream goes, sends blood to their brain. And what happens is they get encephalitis. So because of a little lack of estrogen in these individuals, they end up with bladder infections that lead to sepsis, that leads to brain inflammation, that puts them in the hospital from which they may not recover. And many an older woman has been lost at that time of life by un suspectingly a bladder infection. So I encourage you for your moms, for yourself, for whomever to consider this. And the thing about it is, is that a lot of times older women, a lot of times any woman, they don't drink enough. So they're not enough water, they're not hydrated. So their, kidney, their urine's more concentrated and the bacteria are more dense at that time. So it's a greater risk for women. So I really want you to keep this in you know, front of your mind for your moms in particular. And when they don't feel right, when they've got that back pain that's not right or it hurts somewhere or they're kind of getting foggy and, you know, mom, what's going on here? Bladder infection. Talk to the doctor that day, not tomorrow, not it's Friday, I'm going to check on Monday. That day, because in older people, that's the difference. And then they really go down the tube. So... It's all preventable. They don't notice the increase in urgency. They have it anyway, right? So, but now it's due to an infection and it can be devastating. Yeah. Absolutely true. So with that, what, if, um, what do you recommend for women who don't want to do hormones? What options do they have? Well, of course, it depends on the individual herself. But, um, you know, there are a number of options that are available. There are prescription uh, non-estrogens. And so there is things for vaginal dryness. And, uh, you know, Asfina is a new medication. It's a SERM, a uh, selective estrogen receptor modulator. So that can be used. There's also a new medication, a relatively new medication for hot flashes. 
which is basically one of the old antidepressants, but it's in such a low dose that it doesn't help depression at all. And that's called Brisdale, and it's available for women. It's in, uh, sold as a prescription. They can lower hot flashes. And then I think what's a very intriguing new medicine that's just come out is a combination of our old friend Premarin together with a serum, Bazidoxaphine. So it's an estrogen and an anti-estrogen combined together. Now this anti-estrogen is good for your bones and it protects your breast and your uterine lining. So you can get the estrogen where you want it and block it where you don't want it. And what's good about it, while it hasn't been tested in breast cancer patients and it hasn't been tested you know, with all these different indications, it's a very intriguing option for women who are you know, have a family history of breast cancer, particularly frightened about it, or, you know, other sets of conditions. Then, of course, there's the good old ways that everyone does things to stay healthier, whether or not you take estrogen. Your lifestyle matters. You cannot be well if you take estrogen and nothing else happens. If you're still eating cheeseburgers and tacos and you're still not exercising at all and you never get any sleep and you're stressed out of your mind, Estrogen is not going to make your life perfect. So you've got to go back to the basics. Get seven hours of sleep a night. Lower your stress. Get into Tai Chi, meditation, whatever helps you. Yoga is excellent. You want to eat healthy foods because without healthy foods, your cells are getting unhealthy fuel. It's not good. You don't want the high lead gas in your car. Don't knock your system. And then, of course, you've got to exercise. And exercise may be still one of the best ways to look, you know, control hot flashes. It lowers your risk of depression. It lowers your risk of breast cancer. Exercise is good. It helps you live longer. It's good for your heart. So, I mean, those are the things, and then there are many over-the-counter ones that we could talk about, but there are a lot of options. What I tell women is that everything works for somebody and nothing works for everybody. <laughs> if you put your lifestyle first, and if you add on to it the things you need, such as estrogen, if it's appropriate for you and you, you, something you want to talk about, that's a reasonable consideration. And then the other things that we mentioned, you're good to go. Well, I think that's a great point because, you know, our lifestyle, I say TLC, right? Tender, loving care or therapeutic lifestyle changes. We can all use more of that. Mm -hmm. but, um, definitely as a prescribing physician, one thing I did, I said, you know, if you're not having regular bowel movements, I'm not going to write your hormone prescriptions. You know, if, if you're driving through get fast food and that's your lifestyle, I'm not going to write you hormone prescriptions, right? Because those, that's a little thing. The big thing is the lifestyle. And so as, you know, we enter menopause and we have a new trend, we're going through this transition into this beautiful transformation mm -hmm. that we're um, experiencing that we want it to be healthy. I'm drinking my green drink here. So this is Mighty Maca Greens, but making green drinks and alkalinizing greens are so hugely important. Enough hydration, really kind of having alkalinizing food in our diet is so important. And speaking of breast cancer, in um, JAMA, Recently, last month, they published um, 
a decreased risk of breast cancer with increases in intermittent fasting or greater than 13 and a half hours between dinner and breakfast. So intermittent fasting also showed a decrease in breast cancer. So those, these little lifestyle tips can be huge. Before you go, I know you have to go, what about vaginal androgens like testosterone vaginally, DHEA vaginally, or topically for incontinence and vaginal dryness? DHEA is an interesting um, supplement that is being used. And in the next year or so, I, right now in the pipeline, there is a vaginal DHEA that's being looked at as a prescription that will likely become available. And what's interesting about that is the fact that it, whatever conversion to estrogen there is, it seems to stay in the vagina and not get into the blood at all. So I think we're going to be hearing more about DHEA. In terms of testosterone, whether it's vaginal or otherwise, that has to be individualized with what the person's needs are. I mean, for many women, if they have uh, adequate estrogenization, then libido is fine, and that's a major consideration for testosterone. Uh, bone health is another one that's important, and testosterone is anabolic. Remember all those bad boys who take the testosterone to be stronger at the, you know, hit home runs or run faster or whatever? Well, it's good for women, too, in terms of building muscle, bone, and those are two very important things with aging. So it's always something to consider. But I, I, like, I like to make sure that their internal testosterone is in a normal level or not. If their internal testosterone is good, I generally don't jump to offer it. But if it's low and are their symptoms or not responding to other things, then it's a reasonable thing to do vaginally or, or otherwise. Yeah, especially with incontinence, I found it tremendously beneficial. Mm -hmm. And just a heads up too for our audience, my Jelva cream is coming out. So that's my topical uh, vulvar cream that has some plant stem cells and topical DHEA. So a little, mm -hmm. a little benefit for us to use externally there. But um, I am just so grateful, Dr. Mesh, for all this wisdom that you've Thank been you. able to share with us today and that you've put into the book, The Estrogen Window, to really take away the fear caused by, you know, mass media and misinterpretation of the initial results of the Women's Health Initiative study that a decade later is still going on. So I want our listeners to check out The Estrogen Window. And can you tell us where it's all available and how to get a hold of you also? Absolutely. You can find the book anywhere books are sold. It's on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and uh, bookstores. Everywhere, as a matter of fact, it's now currently being put on the tables in front of Barnes & Noble. Uh, also, if people want to get in touch with me, there's a couple of ways. There's, you can go to drmache.com, D-R-M-A-C-H-E.com, and my website is there. And also, every month, I talk to women from around the world and offer answers to their most pressing questions. And if you're interested, you can go to AskDrMache, A-S-K-D-R-M-A-C-H-E.com, and I'm happy to answer your questions. But something that might be interesting to the listeners is I have something called menopause quiz and if you want to know where you are in menopause if the symptoms are due to menopause and kind of get an idea how you are with other women go to menopausequiz.com take the quiz it's interactive and then you'll get nailed back a score that will tell you where you are compared to others and offer you some tips and information that will be helpful to you menopausequiz.com 
All right. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Mesh. Thank you to all our listeners for being with us today. And then again, to check out Dr. Mesh, D-R-M-A-C-H-E.com and his book, The Estrogen Window. And for every woman out there that wherever you are, whatever condition you find yourself in today, that you can be better tomorrow. And then definitely look for the answers and don't settle for a now. Uh, wish everyone a beautiful evening. Thank you, Dr. Mace. Thank you so much for having me. What a pleasure it's been talking with you. Enjoyed it so much. I did as well. Thank you.